0: Welcome to the QuackCast, a review of supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine, i.e. scams. References for this podcast are available at sciencebasedmedicine.org, as are a variety of interesting commentaries. As always, go to my website, edgydoc.com, for my growing multimedia empire. And if you're bored, write me a glowing review on iTunes. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, be aware I'm recording this outside on a beautiful summer day. So you'll probably hear some extraneous noises like bird calls, cars going by, and almost certainly a barking dog. This episode is called Why People Continue to Use Scams. I remain curious as to why people use and continue to use useless pseudo medicines. I read the literature, but... I find the papers unsatisfactory. They seem incomplete, and I suspect there are as many reasons people choose a pseudomedicine as those who use them. There are numerous surveys on what scams people use. Designing and offering these surveys to every possible medical condition is a growth industry. The old, the young. Cancer patients, AIDS patients. All need to be asked which scam they use. It seems to be a ready way to get a quick entry into your CV. But which scam is used does not speak as to why a particular one is being used. Why try acupunctures instead of say reflexology? There are numerous reasons suggested for why people partake of scams as a general concept. Dissatisfaction with standard medical care is a common reason, but it is not always supported by the literature. Gullibility, ignorance, and stupidity are often credited, but these are not particularly valid. Dr. Novella has covered this topic at Science Based Medicine in 2012. There is some data to suggest that which scam and why is a moving target. their reasons changing over time. The problem with surveys is that the answer given depends in part on the question and how it is phrased. And as I get older, the more I suspect that free will and conscious rational thought are an illusion at worst and a rare phenomenon at best. Sure, I can make trivial choices, deciding to hit a seven or six iron on the fifth hole at Rose City, depending on the wind and pin location. That is, I hope it's a rational decision based on current conditions. And I can still snap hook the ball into the water that should never seriously come into play. But so much of what I think burbles up from some subconscious mental process. After I come to a decision or have an opinion, it seems that I devise an after-the-fact conscious justification for my position. I hear myself making up the reasons on the fly, half wondering who made that decision in the first place. This is most acutely true in infectious diseases, and happens more and more as my career progresses. As I hear a case presentation from the resident, the probable diagnosis pops into my head. Since I have to teach the resident why I think it is a particular diagnosis, I explain my reasoning, but I am often aware that it is an after-the-fact hand-waving. I do not really know why I thought it was a liver abscess that was causing the fever. Just where these ideas come from, I do not know, and it is a little creepy since it is not the conscious me who is doing all the work. It is part of the reason why, along with free will, I suspect consciousness is a minor and unimportant aspect of the human condition. So much seems to go on in my brain over which I have no control. Quote, most of the brain's work is done while the brain's owner is ostensibly thinking about something else. So sometimes you have to deliberately find something else to think and talk about. Neal Stephenson, Cryptonomicon. Declared motivations for behavior are just one big post hoc ergo ergoprompter hoc fallacy. So when people offer explanations for why they participate in a particular scam, I am skeptical. I am suspicious it is all an after-the-fact rationalization. People's motivations are black box, and I suspect most do not have a good understanding as to why they use a scam or actually do anything else. Still, it doesn't stop one from making broad general. I am after I do find it interesting how various biases lead to erroneous conclusions about the way the world works, as I have mentioned before. Our brains have evolved to survive reality, not to understand it. In part, what separates those who subscribe to the notion of science-based medicine and those who practice pseudomedicine are an explicit criteria for accepting evidence of therapeutic efficacy combined with an understanding of all the logical fallacies to which we are prone. The most compelling evidence for efficacy are from randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind studies. The least compelling is personal experience and testimonial. I do not consider making stuff up as evidence, a standard that is not always shared. For most people, the order is reversed, and so often it is the story of the friend's cousin who had their disease cured by some pseudo-medicine or other. What do you have to say to that, Mr. Smarty-Pants skeptic? I like to take Feynman's quote to heart. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Those who practice and partake of pseudomedicines have to ignore that advice. And there are many ways in which we can be fooled into continuing a pseudomedicine after, for whatever reason, we have decided to give it a try. There is an article out of late called Illusions of Causality Are at the Heart of Pseudoscience and include pseudomedical interventions in its discussion. After reviewing, quote, how superstitious beliefs of all types are happily alive and promoted in our Western societies, the authors state or understate, quote, it is not easy to counteract the power and credibility of pseudoscience. No kidding. One important cognitive bias is that people will credit control of events even though they are not responsible for that event. The classic examples are gamblers and athletes with their useless rituals. Interestingly, the more a person is involved in an activity, the stronger their illusion of control. Health and illness tend to provide an opportunity for deep involvement, and few issues are as important as personal health. And they offer, as a result, more risk for being fooled. Quote, people, and arguably other animals as well, trying to... Obtain a desired outcome that occurs independently of their behavior, tend to believe that they are causing the outcome. And people often credit causality of two events even when there is no credible connection between the events. Humans so love to find causality where none exists. Medical conditions are particularly prone to these kinds of cognitive errors. Diseases and their symptoms wax and wane spontaneously. And the more severe illness tends to lessen over time, the so-called regression to the mean. People will usually seek care when their symptoms are at their worst. And so will get better no matter the intervention, effective or not. However, bias will be to credit the intervention for the resolution. I see this all the time in my practice. A patient with no good diagnosis for a treatable infection gets better on antibiotics. Is it that they got better and were on antibiotics? True, true, and unrelated is the medical shorthand. Or they got better because they were on antibiotics? I tend towards the former, but it is very hard to convince doctors and patients that the latter is not true, that they did not improve because of the antibiotics. I wonder how much inappropriate antibiotic prescribing is due to the illusion of causality rather than pleasing the patient and time constraints, which are the usual explanations. The hypothesis, the illusion of efficacy of an intervention is an important factor regarding why people believe worthless therapies are effective, was studied. They did it with a computer simulation. So, here's what they did. Quote, Participants were asked to imagine being a medical doctor who is using a new medicine, Batatrim, which might cure painful crises produced by a fictitious disease called Lindsay syndrome. Then participants were exposed to the records of 100 fictitious patients suffering from these crises, one per trial. In each trial, participants saw three panels. In the upper one, participants were told whether the patient had taken the medicine. In the second panel, participants were asked whether they believed the patient would feel better. Responses to this question were given by clicking on one of two buttons, yes or no. The purpose of this question was to keep the participants' attention. The third and lower panel of each trial appeared immediately after participants had been given their response. It showed whether the fictitious patient was feeling better. In group, high. 80 out of 100 patients had followed the treatment and 20 had not. In group low, 20 patients had followed the treatment and 80 had not. In both cases, 80% of the patients who took the medicine and 80% of those who did not reported getting better. End of quote. So that's important in this study. No matter what the intervention, the patient improved 80% of the time. And then they were asked, quote, to what extent do you think Batatrim is the cause of the healing from the crisis in the patients you have seen? A causal question. And to what extent do you think Batatrim could have been effective in healing the crisis of the patients you have seen? Effectiveness question. Those who are in group high were more likely to judge the Batatrim effective, which is probably how people assess therapies in real life, although the results of the medication were random. Interestingly, they were less likely to rate the batatrim as causing improvement even in the group high. Thinking in terms of causality is not how people tend to assess therapies in real life. So they suggest that thinking in causal rather than effectiveness terms may help decrease the illusion of efficacy. Understanding potential causality, prior plausibility, is difficult. Most people have no reason to understand the biomedical sciences in the depth that would allow them to understand why, say, homeopathy or acupuncture is a crock. So when they take useless nostrums and improve, they probably think in terms of efficacy of the treatment rather than causality and credit the useless nostrum. Not really a surprise as a result except for the beneficial effect of getting people to think causally about an intervention. When a person knows they improved after, say, acupuncture, they always look at you, me, like you are dense when you suggest that they did not get better from the acupuncture. Of course they got better. They took the intervention, they improved. Because. Duh. Quote, Quite possibly the effectiveness question is the one that is most frequently used by lay people when inquiring about the efficacy of medical treatments and pseudoscientific claims in general. But it should be noted that it is probably a misleading question. Stating that a treatment is not effective when all the people who we know that have followed it feel better makes no sense. However, if we were asked whether the treatment is the cause of the recovery of those patients, we would have to look for alternative potential causes, even hidden causes. This process forces participants to consider all the evidence available, something they do not always do, and that other questions may not require. End of quote. This study, even as a simulation, helps to add to understanding not only as to why people continue to use a given useless therapy, but perhaps one way to counter their use. Although the authors do note that it is easier said than done. Quote, Although a good knowledge of scientific methods is always desirable, one problem of such a strategy is that it requires first to convince people that science is something they should pursue, something quite difficult in pseudoscience circles of influence. And second, perhaps even more difficult, to convince people to use control conditions to reduce the frequency with which they attempt to obtain the desired event so that they can learn it occurs equally often when they do nothing, end of quote. But wait, there's more. The use of pseudo-medicines is even more nuanced than the illusion of causality. As a physician, I expect therapies to do something, not only to have a primary effect, but to have side effects. It turns out that doing nothing is an important factor, perhaps, in people thinking a useless therapy is effective. In PLOS One was the recent article the lack of side effects of an ineffective treatment facilitates the development of a belief in its effectiveness hmm. they suggest quote, while most people would agree that people frequently resort to those treatments they believe are more effective we propose that the reverse also holds frequent use of a treatment because of the lack of side effects or other consideration fuels the belief that it is effective even when it is not end of quote They use the ultimate in nothing homeopathy as an example, noting that the use of that nostrum results in the causal illusion, which is increased when the process being treated has a high spontaneous resolution rate. They note, basic research suggests that the more often the patient takes a completely useless medicine, the more likely she will develop a belief in its effectiveness, particularly true when the desired outcome takes place frequently. But no one had ever looked at the consequences of medication side effects may have in determining the belief that a useless therapy has efficacy. Their, quote, prediction is that because a lack of side effects encourages the use of a treatment with high probability, it facilitates the illusory belief that the treatment is working. They used the same computer simulation as before, a variation on the prior study. Students were asked again to treat a dangerous disease called Lindsay syndrome with a drug called Batatrim. I'm starting to think we should all call all useless drugs Batatrim, but that would be too obscure a meme. Patients were divided into two groups. The high-cost group was informed Batatrim would produce a severe and permanent skin rash as a side effect in every patient who takes it and a low-cost group whose patients had no complications from batatrim. Subjects were then shown the records of 50 consecutive patients with the disease and asked as to whether they would treat. Whether or not the patient got better was again determined randomly, but 70% of the time, the fictitious patient improved. After the treatment was decided, the computer randomly assigned the results. The subjects had feedback, quote, In the no-cost group, the outcome was displayed as a picture of a healthy face in the message, the patient has recovered from the crisis. Whereas the outcome absence was displayed as a picture of an ill face, greenish, covered in sweat, identical to the one in the top panel of the computer screen, and the statement, the patient has not recovered from the crisis. By contrast, the high cost group was shown pictures and messages conveying not only the disease outcome, but also the side effects of Batatrim when it was used. Thus, when the medicine was given, the picture of the patient showed a skin rash, and the statement also included the words, and has severe side effects. Likewise, whenever the medicine was not given, the words, and has no side effects, was added to the message. At the end, the subjects were asked to rate the perceived effectiveness of Batatrim. which sounds like a weight loss antibiotic as I think about it. When there were no side effects reported, subjects were much more likely to give the medication and were much more likely to rate the drug as effective. Quote, in this study, we have shown that knowing a medicine produces side effects prevented the overestimation of its effectiveness that is typically observed when the percentage of spontaneous remissions is high. We demonstrated that the mechanism by which this effect works rests on the lower frequency of treatment uses exhibited by those participants who were aware of the medicine's side effect. To my mind, having no side effects is equivalent to saying that the therapy has no effects. But in the world of pseudomedicines, having no effects and no side effects work together to fool the patient by way of the causal illusion that there is efficacy. Having no side effects promotes the use of the medication, and for a process that has a high spontaneous resolution rate, promotes reinforcement of the causal illusion. Since the therapy is harmless, you use it more often, and you see it work more often. The solution? Perhaps it is actually education and awareness of how to think, at least in adolescence, according to this paper. For many adults, however, learning to think is probably too late. Quote, We found that training a group of adolescents in the rational manner of making inferences about cause-outcome relationships decreased their illusory perceptions of causality in a subsequent non-contingent situation. Moreover, including a control condition in the positive contingency scenario allowed us to conclude that the lower causal rating observed in the experimental group could not be solely explained by an increase in suspicion in this group. Rather, the group specifically made more realistic judgments in the null contingency condition while preserving an accurate view of the positive contingency condition. End of quote. Whether this kind of educational interaction will result in long-term changes in how people think beyond the initial interaction is unknown, and I would be skeptical. I suspect that rational thought is not the default cognitive mode. It's certainly not the case for me. I always have to will myself to think rationally about topics. The causal illusion is powerful, especially when combined with all the other cognitive biases simultaneously in action, and the apparently natural resistance to changing one's mind, even as reality changes around you. Quote, A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may well concern himself with this shadow on the wall. Speak what you think now in hard words, and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. Still, it gives one hope. And that despite my lobbying to make Sisyphus the logo for the Society for Science-Based Medicine, the concept at the heart of Science-Based Medicine blog, the Society for Science-Based Medicine, and this QuackCast is that accurate information and critical thinking skills are important and can be taught and is a fundamentally correct approach. And that ends the 147th QuackCast. Head on over to edgydoc.com for my growing multimedia empire. Check out the Society for Science-Based Medicine, sfsbm.org. And if you're bored, go to iTunes and write me glowing reviews, since somehow Apple lost the first five or six years of my glowing reviews, and they need to be replaced. Otherwise, talk to you next time. Bye.